CD 8. Out the corner of his eye, Vimes saw the other werewolves spreading out around the pool. And now you set me up, he said. Pretty amateurishly, I'd say, but impressive, because D couldn't have had much time after he thought I was getting close. It would have worked, too. People aren't good eyewitnesses, I know. They believe what they want to see and what people told them they saw. It was a nice touch giving me that damn one shot. He really must have hoped I'd killed to escape. Is it not time you got out of that pool, said Wolfgang. You mean bath, said Vimes. Yes, there was a wince. Vimes registered it. Oh, you're walking upright and talking, my lad, and you look as strong as an ox. But somewhere between a human and a wolf has a bit of dog in them, doesn't it? We have an ancient custom here, said Wolf, looking away. And it is a good one. Anyone can challenge us. It's a little... Chase, the great game, a competition, if you like. If they outrun us, they win four hundred crowns. That is a very good sum. A man may start a small business visit. Of course, as I can see or realise, if they don't outrun us, the question of the money does not arise. Does anyone ever win, said Vimes. Come on, woodcutters, the people need wood. Sometimes... If they train well and know the country, many a successful man in Bianc owes his start in life to our little custom. In your case, we'll give you, oh, an hour's lead for the sport of it. He pointed. Bianc is five miles in that direction. The law says that you must not enter a dwelling until you get there. And if I don't run, then it will be a really short event. We do not like Ank Morpork. We do not want you here. That's odd, said Vimes. Wolf's broad brow wrinkled. Your meaning? Oh, it's just that everywhere I go in Ank Morpork, I seem to bump into people who come from Oberwald, you see. Dwarfs, trolls, humans, all beavering away quite happily and writing letters home saying, Come on, it's great here. They don't eat you alive for a dollar. Wolf's lip curled, revealing a glint of incisor. Vimes had seen that look on Angua's face. It meant she was having a bad hair day. And a werewolf can have a bad hair day all over. He pushed his luck. It was clearly too weak to move by itself. Angua's getting on well. Vimes, Mr. Civilised Ankh-Morpork, you will run! Hoping that his legs would support him, Vimes climbed out on the snow of the bank as slowly as he dared. There was laughter from the werewolves. You go into the water wearing clothes? Vimes looked down at his streaming legs. You've never seen drawers before, he said. Wolf's lip curled again. He glanced triumphantly at the others. Behold civilization, he said. Vimes puffed life into his cigar and looked around at the frozen woodland with as much hauteur as he could muster. Four hundred crowns, did you say? he said. Yes. Vimes sneered at the forest again. What is that in Ankh-Morpork dollars? Do you know, about a dollar fifty? The question will not arise, Wolf bellowed. Well, I don't want to have to spend it all here. Run! In the circumstances, then, I won't ask you if you've got the money on you. Vimes walked away from the werewolves, glad that they couldn't see his face and very much aware that the skin on his back wanted to crawl around to his front. He kept moving calmly, his wet drawers beginning to crackle in the frosty air until he was certain he was out of sight of the pack. 
So, let's see. They've got better strength than you, they know the country, and if they're as good as Angua, they could track a fart through a skunk's breakfast and your legs hurt already. So what are the pluses here? Well, you've made Wolf really angry. Vimes broke into a run. Not much of a plus there, then, all things considered. Vimes broke into a faster run. Off in the distance, wolves began to howl. There is a saying, it won't get better if you pick it. Corporal Nobbs, or rather Guild President C. W. St. J. Nobbs, reflected on this. A little early snow was fizzling in the air over the metal drum, which, in the approved strike fashion, was glowing red-hot in front of the watch-house. A main problem, as he saw it, was that there was something philosophically wrong with picketing a building that no one except a watchman wanted to enter in any case. It is impossible to keep people out of something they don't want to go into. It can't be done. The chant hadn't worked. An old lady had given him a penny. Colon, colon, colon! Out, out, out! shouted Reg Shoe happily, waving his placard. That doesn't sound right, Reg, said Nobby. Sounds like surgery! He looked at the other placards. Dorful was holding a large, closely worded text, detailing their grievances in full with references to watch procedures and citing a number of philosophical texts. Constable Visit's sandwich board, on the other hand, proclaimed, What profiteth a kingdom if the oxen be deflated? Riddles 2, verse 3. Somehow, these cogent arguments did not seem to be bringing the city to its knees. He turned at the sound of a coach pulling up and looked up at a door which had a crest consisting mainly of a black shield. And above that, looking out of the window, was the face of Lord Vetinare. Ah, none other than Corporal Nobbs, said Lord Vetinare. At this point, Nobby would have given quite a lot to be anyone other than Corporal Nobbs. He wasn't sure whether, as a striker, he should salute. He saluted anyway on the basis that a salute was seldom out of place. "'I gather you have withdrawn your labour,' Lord Vetinari went on. "'In your case, I am sure this presented a good deal of difficulty.' Nobby wasn't certain about that sentence, but the patrician seemed quite amiable. "'Can't stand by when the security of the city is concerned, sir,' he said, oozing affronted loyalty from every unblocked paw. Lord Vetinari paused long enough for the peaceful, everyday sounds of a city apparently on the brink of catastrophe to filter into Nobby's consciousness. "'Well, of course I wouldn't dream of interfering,' he said at last. "'This is guild business. I'm sure His Grace will understand fully when he returns,' he banged on the side of the coach. "'Drive on,' and the coach was gone. A thought that had been nudging Nobby for some time chose this moment to besiege him once again. Mr Vimes is going to go spare. He's going to go mental. Lord Vetinari sat back in his seat, smiling to himself. Uh, did you mean that, sir? said the clerk, Drumnot, who was sitting opposite. Certainly. Make a note to have the kitchen send them down cocoa and buns around three o'clock. Anonymously, of course. It's been a crime-free day, Drumnot. Very unusual. Even the thieves' guild is lying low. Yes, my lord, I can't imagine why. When the cat's away... Yes, Drumnot, but mice are happily unencumbered by apprehensions of the future. Humans, on the other hand, are. And they know that Vimes is going to be back in a week or so, Drumnot. 
and Vimes will not be happy. Indeed, he will not. And when a commander of the watch is unhappy, he tends to spread it around with a big shovel. He smiled again. This is the time for sensible men to be honest, Drumnot. I only hope Colon is stupid enough to let it continue. The snow fell faster. How beautiful the snow is, sisters! Three women sat at the window of their lonely house, looking out at the white Uberwald winter. And how cold the wind is, said the younger sister. The third sister, who was the youngest, sighed. Why do we always talk about the weather? What else is there? Well, it's either freezing cold or baking. I mean, that's it, really. That's how things are in Mother Uberwald, said the oldest sister slowly and sternly. The wind and the snow and the boiling heat of summer. You know, I bet if we cut down the cherry orchard we could put in a roller-skating rink. No. How about a conservatory? We could grow pineapples. No. If we moved to Bjonk, we could get a big apartment for the cost of this place. This is our home, Irina, said the oldest sister. Ah, a home of lost illusions and thwarted hopes. We could go out dancing on everything. I remember when we lived in Bjonk, said the middle sister dreamily. Things were better then. Things were always better then, said the oldest sister. The youngest sister sighed and looked out of the window. She gasped. There's a man running through the cherry orchard. A man? What could he possibly want? The younger sister strained to see. It looks like he wants a pair of trousers. Ah, said the middle sister dreamily. Trousers were better then. The hurrying pack stopped in a chilly blue valley when the howling filled the air. Angua loped back to the sledge, lifted out her bag of clothes with her jaws, glanced at Carrot and disappeared among the drifts. A few moments later she walked back again, doing up her shirt. "'Wolfgang's got some poor devil playing the game,' she said. "'I'm going to put a stop to it. It was bad enough that Father kept the tradition going, but at least he played fair. Wolfgang cheats. They never win.' "'Is this the game you told me about?' "'That's right. But Father played by the rules. If the runner was bright and nimble, he got four hundred crowns and Father had him to dinner at the castle.' If he lost, then your father had him for dinner out in the woods. Thank you for reminding me. I was trying not to be nice. You may have an undiscovered natural talent, said Angra. But no one had to run, is my point. I won't apologise. I've been a copper in Ankh-Morpork, remember? City motto, you may not get killed. Actually, it's carrot, I know. And our family motto is homo homini lupus. A man is a wolf to other men. How stupid! Do you think they mean that men are shy and retiring and loyal and kill only to eat? Of course not. They mean that men act like men towards other men, and the worse they are, the more they think they'd really like being wolves. Humans hate werewolves because they see the wolf in us. But wolves hate us because they see the human inside, and I don't blame them. Vimes veered away from the farmhouse and sprinted towards the nearby barn. There had to be something in there. Even a couple of sacks would do. The chafing qualities of frozen underwear can be seriously underestimated. He'd been running for half an hour. Well, for twenty-five minutes, really. The other five had been spent limping, wheezing, clutching at his chest and wondering how you knew if you were having a heart attack. 
The inside of the barn was barn-like. There were stacks of hay, dusty farm implements, and a couple of threadbare sacks hanging on a nail. He snatched one gratefully. Behind him, the door creaked open. He spun round, clutching the sack to him, and saw three very somberly dressed women watching him carefully. One of them was holding a kitchen knife in a trembling hand. "'Have you come here to ravish us?' she said. "'Madam, I'm being pursued by werewolves!' The three looked at one another. To Vimes the sack suddenly seemed far too small. Eh, will that take you all day?' said one of the women. Vimes held the sack more tightly. "'Ladies, please, I need trousers.' "'We can see that.' "'And a weapon, and boots if you've got them, please.' They went into another huddle. "'We have the gloomy and purposeless trousers of Uncle Vanya,' said one doubtfully. "'He seldom wore them,' said another. "'And I have an axe in my linen cupboard,' said the youngest. She looked guiltily at the other two. "'Look, just in case I ever needed it, all right? I wasn't going to chop anything down.' "'I would be so grateful,' said Vimes. He took in the good but old clothes, the faded gentility, and played the only card in his hand. "'I am His Grace the Duke of Ankh, although I appreciate this fact is not evident at the—' There was a threefold sigh. "'Ankh, more pork! You have a magnificent opera house and many fine galleries. Such wonderful avenues! A veritable heaven of culture and sophistication and unattached men of quality!' Er, uh, I said Ankh, more pork,' said Vimes. "'With an A and an M. "'We have always dreamed of going there.' "'I'll have three coach tickets sent along immediately I get home,' said Vimes, "'his mind's ear hearing the crunch of speeding paws over snow. "'But, dear ladies, if you could fetch me those things.' "'They hurried away, but the youngest lingered by the door. "'Do you have long cold winters in Ankh-Morpok?' she said. "'Just muck and slush, usually. "'Any cherry orchards?' I don't think we have any, I'm afraid. She punched the air. Yes! A few minutes later, Vimes was alone in the barn, wearing a pair of ancient black trousers that he'd tied up at the waist with rope, and holding an axe that was surprisingly sharp. He had five minutes, perhaps. Wolves probably didn't stop to worry about heart attacks. There was no point in simply running. They could run faster. He needed to stay near civilization and its hallmarks, like trousers. Maybe time was on Vimes's side. Angua was never very talkative about her world, but she had said that in either shape a werewolf slowly lost some of the skills of the other shape. After several hours on two legs, her sense of smell dropped from uncanny to merely good, and after too long as a wolf... It was like being drunk, as far as Vimes understood it. A little inner part of you was still trying to give instructions, but the rest of you was acting stupid. The human part started to lose control. He looked around the barn again. There was a ladder to an upper gallery. He climbed it and looked out of a glassless window across a snowy meadow. There was a river in the distance and what looked very much like a boathouse. Now, how would a werewolf think? The werewolves slowed as they reached the building. Their leader glanced at a lieutenant and nodded. It loped off in the direction of the boathouse. The others followed Wolf inside. The last became human for a moment to pull the doors shut and drop the bar across. Wolf stopped near the centre of the barn. Hay had been scattered over the floor in great fluffy piles. He scraped gently with a paw, and wisps fell away from a rope that was stretched taut. Wolf took a deep breath. The other werewolves, sensing what was going to happen, looked away. There was a moment of struggling shapelessness, 
and then he was rising slowly on two feet, blinking in the dawn of humanity. That's interesting, thought Vimes up on the gallery. A or two after changing, they're not entirely up on current events. Oh, your grace, said Wolf, looking around. A trap, how very civilised! He caught sight of Vimes, who was standing on the higher floor by the window. What was it supposed to do, your grace? Vimes reached down to the oil lamp. It was supposed to be a decoy, he said. He hurled the lamp down onto the dry hay and flicked his cigar after it. Then he grabbed the axe and climbed through the window just as the spilt oil went whoomp. Vimes dropped into the deep snow and ran towards the boathouse. There were other tracks leading to it, not human. When he reached the door, he swung wildly at the darkness just inside and his reward was a cut-off yelp. The skiff that was housed in the tumble-down shed was a quarter full of dark water, but he didn't dare think about bailing yet. He grabbed the dusty oars and rowed with considerable effort and not much speed out onto the river. He groaned. Wolf was trotting across the snow with the rest of the pack behind him. They all seemed to be there. Wolf cupped his hands. Very civilised, your grace, but you see, when you set fire to a barn full of wolves, they panic, your grace. But when they're werewolves, one of them just opens the door. You cannot kill werewolves, Mr. Vimes. Tell that to the one in the boathouse, Vimes shouted as the current took the boat. Wolf looked into the shadows for a moment and then cupped his hands again. He will recover, Mr. Vimes. Vimes swore under his breath, because despite all his hopes, a couple of werewolves had plunged into the water upstream and were swimming strongly towards the opposite bank. But that was a doggy thing, wasn't it? Leap joyfully into the water outdoors, but fight like hell against a tub. Wolfgang had started to trot along the bank. The ones in the water emerged on the far bank. Now they were keeping pace with the boat on both sides but the current was carrying it along faster now. Vimes started to bail with both hands. "'You can't outrun the river, Wolf,' he shouted. "'We don't have to, Mr Vimes. That is not the question. The question is, can you outswim the waterfall? See you later, civilised.' Vimes looked around. In the distance, the river had a foreshortened look. When he concentrated, the inner ear of terror could hear a distant roaring. He snatched the oars again and tried to row upstream, and, yes, it was possible to make headway against the currents, but he couldn't keep rowing faster than wolves could run, and taking on two at once on the shore when they were ready and waiting for him was not an option. If he went over the falls now, he might get to the bottom before they did. That wasn't a good sentence, however he tried it. He took his hands off the oars and pulled in the mooring rope. If I make a couple of loops, he thought, I can strap the axe onto my back. He had a mental picture of what would happen to a man who plunged into the cauldron below a waterfall with a sharp piece of metal attached to his body. "'Good morning,' Vimes blinked. A tall, dark, robed figure was now sitting in the boat. "'Are you death?' "'It's the size, isn't it? People always notice the size.' "'I'm going to die.' "'Possibly.' "'Possibly?' You turn up when people are possibly going to... Oh, yes. It's quite the new thing. It's because of the uncertainty principle. What's that? I'm not sure. That's very helpful. I think it means people may or may not die. I have to say it's playing hob with my schedule, but I try to keep up with modern thought. The roar was a lot louder now. 
Vimes lay back in the boat and gripped the sides. I'm talking to death, he thought, to take my mind off things. Didn't I see you last month? I was chasing bigger than small Dave Dave along Peach Pie Street and I fell off that ledge. That is correct. But I landed in that cart. I didn't die. But you might have done. But I thought we all had some kind of hourglass thing that said when we're going to die. Now the roar was almost physical. Vimes redoubled his grip on the boat. Oh, yes, you do, said Death. But we might not. No, you will. There is no doubt about that. But you said... Yes, it is a bit hard to understand, isn't it? Apparently there's this thing called the trousers of time, which is quite odd because time certainly doesn't... The boat went over the waterfall. Vimes had a thunderous sensation of pounding, thudding water, followed by the echoing ringing in his ears as he hit the pool below. He fought his way to what passed for the surface and felt the current take him, slam him into a rock and then roll him away in the white water. He flailed blindly and caught another rock, his body swinging around into a pool of comparative calm. As he fought for breath, he saw a grey shape leaping from stone to stone and then another dose of hell was unleashed as it landed, snarling, beside him. He grabbed it desperately and hung on as it struggled to bite him. A paw flailed to gain purchase on the slippery stone, and then, in sudden difficulties responding automatically, it changed. It was as if the wolf shape became small and a man shape became bigger in the same space, at the same time, with a moment of horrible distortion as the two forms passed through one another. And then that he'd noticed before a second of confusion. It was just long enough to ram the man's head against the rock with every ounce of strength he could scrape together. Vimes thought he heard a crack. Then he pushed himself back out into the current and let it carry him on while he simply struggled to stay near the surface. There was blood in the water. He'd never killed someone with his bare hands before. Truth to tell, he'd never deliberately killed at all. There had been deaths, because when people are rolling down a roof and trying to strangle one another... It's sheer luck who is on top when they hit the ground, but that was different. He went to bed every night believing that. His teeth were chattering and the bright sun made his eyes ache, but he felt good. He wanted to beat his chest and scream, in fact. They'd been trying to kill him. Make them stay wolves, said a little inner voice. The more time they spent on four legs, the less bright they'd become. A deeper voice, red and raw from much, much further inside, said, Kill them all. The rage was boiling up now, fighting against the chill. His feet touched bottom. The river was broadening here into something wide enough to be called a lake. A wide ledge of ice had crept out from the bank, covered here and there with blown snow. Fog drifted across it, fog with a sulphurous smell. There were still cliffs on the far side of the river. A solitary werewolf, companion to the one now drifting on the current, was watching him from the nearest bank. Clouds were sliding across the sun and snow was falling again in large, raggedy flakes. Vimes waded to the rim of ice and tried to pull himself up out of the water, but it creaked ominously under his weight and cracks zigzagged across its surface. The wolf came closer, moving with caution. Vimes made another desperate attempt. A slab of ice came free and tipped up, and he disappeared under the water. The creature waited a few moments and then inched further out over the ice, growling as fine cracks spread out like stars under its paws. A shadow moved in the shallow water below it. Explosion of water and breath as Vimes broke through the ice under the werewolf and grabbed it around the waist and fell back. 
A claw ripped along Vimes's side, but he gripped as hard as he could with arms and legs as they rolled under the ice. It was a desperate test of lung capacity, he knew, but he wasn't the one who just had the air squeezed out of him. He held on, while the water clanged in his ears and the thing scrabbled and scratched at him, and then, when there was nothing else left but to let go or drown, he punched his way up to the air. Nothing lashed at him. He cracked his way through the ice to the bank, dropped on his hands and knees and threw up. Howling started all around the mountains. Vimes looked up. Blood was coursing down his arms. The air stank of rotten eggs, and there, high on a hill a mile or so off, was the Clax Tower, with its stone walls and a door that could be bolted. He stumbled forward. The snow underfoot was already giving way to coarse grass and moss. The air was hotter now, but it was the clammy heat of a fever, and he looked around and realised where he was. There was bare dirt and rock in front of him, but here and there parts of it were moving and going blop. Where he looked there were fat geezers, rings of ancient congealed yellow fat, so old and rancid that even Sam Vimes wouldn't dip his toast in it unless he was really hungry, encircled sizzling little pools. There were even black floating bits, which on second glance turned out to be insects that were slow learners in a hot, fat situation. Vimes recalled something Igor had said. Sometimes dwarfs working in the high strata, where the fat had congealed into a kind of tallow millennia ago, found strange ancient animals perfectly preserved but fried to a crisp. Probably, Vimes found himself laughing out of sheer exhaustion, probably battered to death. <laughs> the snow was falling heavily now, making the fat pools spit. He sagged to his knees. He ached all over. It wasn't just that his brain was writing cheques his body couldn't cash. It had gone beyond that. Now his feet were borrowing money that his legs hadn't got, and his back muscles were looking for loose change under the sofa cushions. And still nothing was coming up behind him. Surely they must have crossed the river by now. Then he saw one. He could have sworn it hadn't been there a moment ago. Another one trotted out from behind a nearby snowdrift. They sat watching him. Come on, then, Vimes yelled. What are you waiting for? The pools of fat hissed and bubbled round Vimes. It was warm here, though. If they weren't going to move, then neither was he. He focused on a tree on the edge of the fat geezers. It looked barely alive, with greasy splashes on the end of the longer branches, but it also looked climbable. He concentrated on it, tried to estimate the distance and the speed he might be capable of. The werewolves turned to look at it, too. Another one had entered the clearing at a different point. There were three watching him now. They weren't going to run until he did, he realised. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fun. He shrugged, turned away from the tree, and then turned back and ran. By the time he was halfway there, he was afraid his heart was going to climb up his throat. But he ran on, jumped awkwardly, caught a low branch, slipped, struggled gasping to his feet grabbed the branch again and managed to pull himself up, expecting at every second the first tiny puncture as teeth broke his skin. He rocked on the greasy wood. The werewolves hadn't moved, but they were watching him with interest. You bastards, Vimes growled. They got up and picked their way carefully towards the tree without hurrying. Vimes climbed a little further up. Ankh-more pork, Mr. Civilised, where are your weapons now, Ankh-more pork? It was Wolfgang's voice. Vimes peered around the snowdrifts which were already piling up with violet shadows as the afternoon died. I got two of you, he shouted. Yes, they will have big headaches later on. 
We are werewolves, Ankh-Morpork, quite hard to stop. You said that you... Your Mr. Sleeps could run much faster than you, Ankh-Morpork. Fast enough? No. And the man with a little black hat could fight better than you, too. Well enough? No! shouted Wolfgang cheerfully. Vimes growled. Even assassins didn't deserve that kind of death. It'll be sunset soon, he shouted. Yes, I lied about the sunset. Well, wake me up at dawn, then. I could do with the sleep. You will freeze to death, civilised man. Good. Vimes looked around at the other trees. Even if he could jump to one, they were all conifers, painful to land in and easy to fall out of. Ah, this must be the famous Ankh-Morpork sense of humour, yes? No, that was just irony, Vimes shouted, still looking for an arboreal escape route. You'll know when we've got on to the famous Ankh-Morpork sense of humour when I start talking about breasts and farting, you smug bastard. So, what were his options? Well, he could stay in the tree and die, or run for it and die. Of the two, dying in one piece seemed better. You're doing very well for a man of your age. Death was sitting on a higher branch of the tree. Are you following me or what? Are you familiar with the words, death was his constant companion? But I don't usually see you. Possibly you are in a state of heightened awareness caused by lack of food, sleep and blood. Are you going to help me? Well, yes. When? Uh... When the pain is too much to bear, death hesitated and then went on. Even as I say it, I realise that this is not the answer you were looking for, however. The sun was near the horizon now, getting big and red. Racing the sun. That was another Uberwald sport, wasn't it? Be home safe before the sun sets. Half a mile or more through deep snow on rising ground. Someone was climbing the tree. He felt it shake. He looked down. In the cold blue gloom, a naked man was quietly pulling himself from branch to branch. Vimes was enraged. They weren't supposed to do this. There was a grunt from below as the climber slipped and recovered on the greasy wood. How are you feeling in yourself? Shut up! Even if you are a hallucination. There must be something about werewolves he could use. You have a second's grace when they're changing shape, but they knew he knew that. No weapons. That's what he'd noticed in the castle. You always got weapons in castles. Spears, battle axes, ridiculous suits of armour, huge old swords. Even the vampires had a few rapiers on the walls. That was because sometimes even vampires had to use a weapon. Werewolves didn't. Even Angua hesitated before reaching for a sword. To a werewolf, a physical weapon would always be the second choice. Vimes locked his legs together and swung around the branch as the werewolf came up. He caught it a blow on the ear, and as it looked up, managed to get another blow right on the nose. It gave him a ringing slap, and that would have ended it, except that it also pulled itself a little further up the tree and brought itself within range of the Vimes elbow. It justified the capital letter. It had triumphed in a number of street fights. Vimes had learned early on in his career that the graveyards were full of people who'd read the Marquis of Fantaylor. The whole idea of fighting was to stop the other bloke hitting you as soon as possible. It wasn't to earn marks. Vimes had often fought in circumstances where being able to use the hands freely was a luxury, but it was amazing how a well-placed elbow could make a point 
possibly assisted by a knee. He drove it into the werewolf's throat and was rewarded with a horrible noise. Then he grabbed a handful of hair and pulled, let go and slammed the palm of his hand into its face in a mad attempt to prevent it having a second to think. He couldn't allow that. He could see the size of the man's muscles. The werewolf reacted instead. There was that sudden moment of morphological inexactitude. A nose turned into a muzzle while Vimes's fist was en route, but when the wolf opened its mouth to lunge at him, two things occurred to it. One was that it was high in a tree, not a tenable position for a shape designed for fast-paced living on the ground. The other was gravity. Down there, it's the law, Vimes panted as its paws scrabbled for purchase on the greasy branch. But up here, it's me. He reached up, grabbed the branch above him and kicked down with his feet. There was a yelp, and another yelp as the wolf slid and hit the next branch down. About halfway towards the ground it tried to change back again, combining in one falling shape all the qualities of something not good at staying in trees with something not good at landing on the ground. Gotcha! screamed Vimes. In the forest all around a howling went up. The branch he was clinging to snapped. For a moment he hung by the gloomy trousers of Uncle Vanya, caught on a snag, and then their ancient fabric ripped off him and he dropped. His progress was a little faster, since the falling werewolf had removed a lot of the branches on the way down, but the landing was softer, because the werewolf was just getting to its feet. Vimes's flailing hand grabbed a broken branch. A weapon! Thought more or less stopped when his fingers closed. Whatever replaced it in the pathways of his brain was gushing up from somewhere else thousands of years old. The werewolf struggled up and turned on him. The branch caught it across the side of the head. Steam rose off Sir Samuel Vimes as he lurched forward, snarling incoherently. He smacked the club down again. He roared. There were no words there. It was a sound from before words. If there was any meaning in it at all, it was a lament that he couldn't cause enough pain. The wolf whined, stumbled, rolled over and changed. The human extending a bleeding hand towards him in supplication. Please! Vimes hesitated, club raised. The red rage drained away. He was on a freezing hillside against a cold sunset, and they'd left him alone, and he might just make it to the tower. In one movement, changing from man to wolf as it moved, the werewolf sprang. Vimes went backwards into the snow. He could feel the breath and the blood, but not the pain. No talons ripped, no teeth tore, and the weight was lifted. Hands pulled the body off him. "'Bit of a close one there, sir,' said a voice cheerfully. "'Best not to give them any quarter, really.' There was a spear right through the werewolf. "'Carrot! We'll get a fire going. It's easy if you dip the wood in the fat springs first. "'Carrot! I shouldn't think you've eaten. There's not much game this close to the town, but we've still got some. "'Carrot!' "'Er, uh, yes, sir?' "'What the hell are you doing here?' "'It's all a bit complicated, sir. Here, let me help you up.' Vimes shook him off as he tried to help him to his feet. "'I got this far, thank you. I think I'm capable of standing up,' he said, and forced his legs to support him. "'You seem to have lost your trousers, sir.' "'Yes, it's the famous Ankh-Morpork sense of humour," growled Vimes. "'Only Angua will be back soon, and, er, uh, and, er, uh, Sergeant Angua's family, Captain, are in the habit of running around the woods in the snow, stark bolt, stark naked.' Yes, sir, but I mean, you know, it's not really... I'll give you five minutes to find a clothes shop, shall I? Otherwise... Look, where the hell are all the werewolves, eh? 
I was expecting to drop into a heap of snarling jaws, and now you're here, thank you very much, and there's no werewolves. Gavin's people chased them away, sir. You must have heard the howl go up. Gavin's people, eh? Well, that's good. That's very good. I'm pleased about that. Well done, Gavin. Now, who the hell is Gavin? A howl went up from a distant hill. That's Gavin, said Carrot. A wolf? Gavin's a wolf? I've been saved from werewolves by wolves. It's all right, sir. When you think about it, it's not really any different from being saved from werewolves by people. When I think about it, I think perhaps I was better off lying down, said Vimes weakly. Let's get to the sleigh, sir. I was trying to say we have got your clothes. That's how anger tracked you. Ten minutes later, Vimes was sitting in front of a fire with a blanket around him, and the world seemed to make a little more sense. A slice of venison was going down very well, and Vimes was far too hungry to bother that the butcher appeared to have used his teeth. The wolves spy on the werewolves, he said. Sort of, sir. Gavin keeps an eye on things for Angua. They're old friends. The moment of silence went on slightly too long. He sounds like a very bright wolf, said Vimes, in the absence of anything more diplomatic to say. More than that... Angua thinks he might be part werewolf from way back. Can that happen? She says so. Did I tell you he came all the way into Ankh-Morpork, a big city? Can you imagine what it must have been like? Vimes turned at a faint sound behind him. A large wolf was standing at the edge of the firelight. It was looking at him intensely. It wasn't just the look of an animal sizing him up on the level of food-threat thing. Behind that stare, wheels were turning and there was a small but rather proud mongrel at his side, scratching furiously. "'Is that Gaspode?' said Vimes. "'The dog that's always hanging round the watch-house?' "'Yes, he helped me get here,' said Carrot. "'I just don't want to ask,' said Vimes. "'Any minute now a door's going to open in a tree, and Fred and Nobby are going to step out. Am I right?' "'I hope not, sir.' Gavin lay down a short distance from the fire and started watching Carrot. "'Captain,' said Vimes. "'Yes, sir?' You'll notice I haven't pressed you on why you're here as well as Angua. Yes, sir. Well, said Vimes. And now he thought he recognised the look on Gavin's face, even though it was on a face of an unusual shape. It was the look you got on the face of a gentleman lounging on a corner by a bank, watching the comings and goings, seeing how the place worked. I was admiring your diplomacy, sir. Hm? What? said Vimes, still staring at the wolf. I appreciated the way you are avoiding asking questions, sir. Angua walked into the firelight. Vimes saw her glance around the circle and squat down on the snow exactly halfway between Carrot and Gavin. They're miles away now. Oh, hello, Mr Vimes. There was some more silence. Is anyone going to tell me something? said Vimes. My family are trying to upset the coronation, said Angua. They're working with some dwarfs that don't want... that want to keep Uberwald separate. I think I've worked that one out. Running for your life through a freezing cold forest gives you a bit of an insight. I have to tell you, sir, my brother killed the clack signallers. His scent's all over the place up there. Gavin made a noise in his throat. And another man that Gavin didn't recognise, except that he spent a lot of time hiding in the forest and watching our castle. I think that might have been a man called Sleeps, one of our agents, said Vimes. He did well. He managed to get to a boat a few miles down river. Unfortunately, there was a werewolf waiting in it. It was a waterfall that did it for me, said Vimes. Permission to speak honestly, sir, said Angua. Don't you always? They could have got you any time they liked, sir. Really, they could. 
They wanted you to get as far as the tower before they really attacked. I expect Wolfgang thought that'd be nicely symbolic or something. I got three of them. Yes, sir, but you wouldn't have been able to get three of them all at once. Wolfgang was having some fun. That's how he's always played the game. He's good at thinking ahead. He likes ambushes. He likes some poor soul to get within a few yards of the finish before he leaps out on them. Anger aside. Look, sir, I don't want there to be trouble. He's been killing people. Yes, sir, but my mother's just a rather ignorant snob, and my father's half gone now. He spends so much time as a wolf, he hardly knows how to act human any more. They don't live in the real world. They really think Uberwald can stay the same. There isn't a lot up here, really, but it's ours. Wolfgang's a murderous idiot who thinks that werewolves are born to rule. The trouble is, sir, he hasn't broken the law. Oh, ye gods! I bet he could find plenty of witnesses to say that he gave everyone the start the law requires. That's the rules of the game. And meddling with the dwarf's affairs, he's stolen the scone or swapped it or something. I haven't worked it all out yet, but one poor dwarf's already dead because of it. Cherry and Detritus are under arrest, Inigo is dead, Sybil's locked up somewhere, and you're saying it's all OK? Things are different here, sir, said Carrot. It wasn't until ten years ago that they replaced trial by ordeal here with trial by lawyer, and that was only because they found that lawyers were nastier. I've got to get back to Bonk. If they've harmed Sybil, I don't care what the damn law is. Mr Vimes, you look done in as it is, said Carrot. I'll keep going. Come on, get some of the wolves to pull the sleigh. You don't get them to, sir. You ask Gavin if they will, said Carrot. Oh, er... Uh, can you explain the situation to him? I'm standing in the cold in the middle of a forest, thought Vimes a moment later, watching a quite handsome young woman growling a conversation with a wolf who is watching her. This does not often happen. Not in Ankh-Morpork, anyway. It's probably a daily occurrence up here. Eventually, six wolves allowed themselves to be harnessed and Vimes was carried up the hill to the road. Stop. Sir, said Carrot. I want a weapon. There's got to be something in the tower I can use. Sir, you can use my sword, and there's the hunting spears. You know what you can do with the hunting spears. Vimes kicked the door at the base of the tower. Fresh snow had blown in, smoothing the edges of wolf and human tracks. He felt drunk. Bits of his brain were going on and off. His eyeballs felt as though they were lined with toweling. His legs seemed only vaguely under his control. Surely the signalers must have had something. Even the sacks and barrels had gone. Well, there were plenty of peasants in the hills and winter was coming on and the men who'd been here certainly had no further use for the food. Even Vimes wouldn't call that theft. He climbed up to the next floor. The thrifty people of the forest had been up here too, but they hadn't taken the bloodstains off the floor or Inigo's little round hat, which inexplicably was wedged into the wooden wall. He pulled it out and saw where the thin felt on the brim had been pushed back to reveal the razor-sharp edge. An assassin's hat, he thought, and then, no, not an assassin's hat. He remembered the street fights he'd seen when he was a kid, among the hard-drinking men who thought that even bare-knuckled fighting was posh. Some of them would sew a razor blade into the brim of their cap for a bit of help in a melee. This was the hat of a man who was always looking for that extra edge. It hadn't worked here. He dropped it on the floor and his eye caught in the gloom the box of mortars. Even that had been ransacked but the tubes had simply been scattered across the floor. The gods alone knew what the scavengers thought they were. He put them back in their box. Inigo was right about them, at least. 
a weapon so inaccurate that it probably couldn't hit a barn wall from inside the barn was no good as a weapon. But other things had been scattered around too. The men who'd been living rough here had left a few personal items. Pictures had been thumbtacked to the wall. There was a diary, a pipe, someone's shaving gear. Boxes had been tipped out on the floor. We'd better be getting on, sir, said Carrot from the ladder. They'd been killed. They'd been sent racing off into the dark with monsters at their heels, and then some blank-faced peasants who'd done nothing to help had come in here and picked over the little things they'd left behind. Damn it! Vimes growled and swept everything into a box and dragged it over to the ladder. We'll drop this lot off at the embassy, he said. I'm not leaving anything here for scavengers. Don't think about arguing with me. Wouldn't dream of it, sir, wouldn't dream of it. Vimes paused. Carrot, that wolf and Angua... He stopped. How the hell do you continue a sentence like that? They're old friends, sir. They are. There was nothing but the usual completely open honesty anywhere in Carrot's expression. Oh, well, <clears throat> that's good then, Vimes finished. A minute later, they were on their way again. Angua was running as a wolf far ahead of the sleigh, alongside Gavin. Gaspode had curled up under the blankets. And here I am again, thought Vimes, racing the sunset. Heavens know why. I'm in the company of a werewolf, and a wolf that looks worse, and sitting in a sleigh drawn by wolves which I can't steer. Try looking that one up in the manual. He dozed among the blankets, half-open eyes watching the disk of the sun flickering between pine trees. How could you steal the scone from its cave? He'd said there were dozens of ways, and there were, but they were all risky. They all depended too much on luck and sleepy guards. And this didn't feel like a crime that was going to rely on luck. It had to work. The scone wasn't important. It was important that the dwarfs ended in disarray. No king. Violent arguments and fighting in the dark. And it would stay dark in Uberwald too. And it seemed to be important that the king was blamed. After all, he was the one who'd lost the scone. Whatever the plan was, it had to be done quickly. Well, the clacks would have been useful. What had Wolfgang said? Those clever men in Ankh-Morpork. Not dwarfs, but men. Rubber Sonky floating in his vat. You dipped in a wooden hand, and out of the vat you got a glove. Hand in glove. It isn't where you put it. It's where people think it is. That's what matters. That's the magic. He remembered the very first thought he'd had when he'd seen Cheery staring at the floor of the scone's cave, and the little policeman in Vimes's head started to clamour. What, sir? said Carrot. Hm? Vimes forced open his eyes. You just shouted, sir. What did I shout? You shouted, The bloody thing was never bloody stolen, sir. The bastards! I knew I nearly had it. It all fits together if you don't think like a dwarf. Let's make sure Sybil is all right, and then, Captain, we're going to... Prod buttock, sir? Right. Only one thing, sir. What? You are an escaped criminal, aren't you? For a moment, there was only the sound of the runners skimming over the snow. Well, said Vimes, this isn't Ankh-Morpork, I know. Everyone keeps telling me. But, Captain, wherever you are, wherever you go, watchmen are always watchmen. A solitary light burned in the window. Captain Colon sat by the candle, staring at nothing.
Regulations called for the watch house to be manned at all hours, and that's what he was doing. The floorboards in the room below creaked into a new position. For many months now they'd been walked on around the clock, because the main office never had fewer than half a dozen people in it. Chairs, too, accustomed to being warmed continuously by a relay of bottoms, groaned gently as they cooled. There was only one thought buzzing around Fred Colon's head. Mr Vimes is going to go completely bursar. He's going to go totally librarian poo. His hand went down to the desk and came back automatically while he looked straight ahead. There was the crunch of a sugar lump being eaten. Snow was falling again. The watchman that Vimes had named Colonescu was leaning in his box by the hubward gate of Bionk. He'd perfected the art, and it was an art form, of going to sleep upright with his eyes open. It was one of the things you learned on Endless Nights. A female voice by his ear said, Now there are two ways this could go. His position didn't change. He continued to stare straight ahead. You haven't seen anything. That's the truth, isn't it? Just nod. He nodded once. Good man. You didn't hear me arrive, did you? Just nod. Nod. So you won't know when I've gone, am I right? Just nod. Nod. You don't want any trouble. Just nod. Nod. They don't pay you enough for this. Just nod. This time the nod was quite emphatic. You get more than your fair share of night watches as it is anyway. Colonescu's jaw dropped. Whoever was standing in the shadows was clearly reading his mind. Good man, you just stand here then and make sure no one steals the gate. Colonescu took care to continue to stare straight ahead. He heard the thud and creak of the gate being opened and closed. It occurred to him that the speaker had not in fact mentioned what the other way was and he was quite relieved about that. What was the other way? said Vimes as they hurried through the snow. We'd go and look for another way in, said Angua. There were few people on the streets, which were whitening with the new snow again, except where wisps of steam escaped from the occasional grating. In Uberwald, it seemed, sunset made its own curfew. This was just as well because Gavin was growling continuously under his breath. Carrot came back from the next corner. There's dwarfs on guard all around the embassy, he said. They don't look open to negotiation, sir. Vimes looked down. They were standing on a grating. Captain Tantony of the Bionk Watch was not happy with this duty. He'd been at the opera last night, and later on he'd thought he saw things happening in a way which the Burgomaster had instructed him hadn't happened. Of course, the thing to do was to obey orders. You were safe if you obeyed orders. Everyone in the watch knew that. But these didn't feel like safe orders. He'd heard they did things differently in Ankh-Morpork. Milord Vimes would arrest anyone, they said. Tantony had set up a desk in the embassy's hall so that he could keep an eye on the main doors. He'd taken some pains to position his men around the inside of the building. He didn't trust the dwarfs on guard outside. They'd said they'd got orders to kill Vimes on sight, and that didn't make sense. There had to be some sort of a trial, didn't there? There was a faint noise from upstairs. He stood up carefully and reached for his crossbow. Corporal Sveltz. There was another little sound. Tantony went to the bottom of the stairs. Vimes appeared at the top of them. There was blood on his shirt and crusted on the side of his face. To the captain's horror, he began to walk down the steps. I will shoot you. 
That's the order, is it? said Vimes. Yes, stop there. But if I'm going to be shot anyway, there's no point in stopping, is there? said Vimes. I don't think you're the kind to do that, Captain. You've got a brain. Vimes steadied himself on the banister rail. Shouldn't you have called for the rest of the guards by now, by the way? I tell you to stop. You know who I am. If you're going to fire that damn thing, do it now. But first, I suggest it would be a really good career move to tug the bell pull over there. What's the worst that would happen? You've still got the bow pointed at me. There's something you really ought to know. Tantony gave him a suspicious look, but took a few steps sideways and tugged the rope. Igor stepped out from behind the pillar. Yes, master? Tell this young man where he is, will you? He's in Ankh-Morpork, master, said Igor calmly. See, said Vimes, and don't glare at Igor like that. I missed it when he welcomed me here, but it's true. This is an embassy, my son, he went on, walking forwards again, and that means it's officially on the soil of the home country. Welcome to Ankh-Morpork. There's thousands of Ubervalt people living in our city. You don't want to go start in a war, do you? But, but, they said, my orders, you are a criminal. The word is accused, Captain. We don't kill people in Ankh-Morpork just because they're accused. Well, not on purpose. And not because someone tells us to. Vimes took the crossbow out of Tantony's unresisting hands and fired it into the ceiling. Now send your men away, he said. I'm in Ankh-Morpork, said the captain. Even in his current state, Vimes thought he recognised the harmonics. That's right, he said, putting an arm round him. A city which, incidentally, always has a job in the watch for a young man of ability. Tantony's body stiffened. He pushed Vimes's arm away. You insult me, my lord. This is my country. Ah. Vimes was aware of Carrot and Angua watching from the landing. But I will not see it dishonoured either, said the captain. This isn't right. I saw what happened last night. You swept up the king and your troll caught the chandelier. And then they said you'd try to kill the king, and you'd kill dwarfs when you escaped. Are you in charge of the watch here? No, that's the job of the burgomaster. And who gives him his orders? Everyone, said Tantony bitterly. Vimes nodded. Been there, he thought. Been there, done that, bought the doublet. Are you going to stop me taking my people out of here? How can you do that? The dwarfs surround us. We're going to use diplomatic channels. Just show me where everyone is and we'll be off. If it's any help, I can hit you over the head and tie you up. That will not be required. The dwarf and the troll are in the cellar. Her ladyship is... I assume she's wherever the baron took her. Vimes felt the little trickle of superheated ice down his spine. Took her, he said hoarsely. Well, yes. Tantony stepped back from Vimes's expression. She knew the baroness, sir. She said they were all friends. She said they could sort it all out, and then... Tantony's voice became a mumble, seared into silence by the look on Vimes's face. When Vimes spoke, it was in a monotone as threatening as a spear. You are standing there in your shiny breastplate and your silly helmet and your sword without a single notch on the blade and your stupid trousers, and you are telling me that you let my wife be taken away by werewolves? Tantony took a step backwards. It was the Baron, and you don't argue with Barons, right? You don't argue with anyone. Do you know what? I'm ashamed, ashamed to think that something like you is called a watchman. Now give me those keys. The man had gone red. You've obeyed any orders, said Vimes. Don't 
even think about disobeying that one. Carrot reached the bottom of the stairs and put a hand on Vimes' shoulder. Steady, Mr Vimes. Tantony looked from one to the other and made a life decision. I hope you find your lady, my lord. He produced a bunch of keys and handed them over. I really do. Vimes, still fighting for breath, wordlessly passed the keys to Carrot. Let them out, he said. Are you going to the werewolf's castle? Tantony panted. Yes. You won't stand a chance, my lord. They do as they please. Then they've got to be stopped. You can't. The old one understood the rules, but Wolfgang, he doesn't obey anything. All the more reason to stop him, then. Ah, detritus. The troll saluted. You've got your bow, I see. Treated you well, did they? They called me a ficko troll, said detritus darkly. One of them kicked me in a rocks. Was it this one? No. But he is their captain, said Vimes, stepping away from Tantony. Sergeant, I order you, shoot him down. In one movement, the troll had the crossbow balanced on his shoulder and was sighting along the massive package of arrows. Tantony went pale. Well, go on, said Vimes. It was an order, Sergeant. Detritus lowered the bow. I ain't dat thick, sir. I gave you an order. Then you can do with dat order what Boulder de Lintel did with his bag of gravel, sir. With respect, of course. Vimes walked across and patted the shaking Tantony on his shoulder. Just making a point, he said. However, said Detritus, if you can find a man that kicked me in a rocks, I should be happy to give him a flick round the ear hole. I know which one it was. He's the one walking with the limp. Lady Sybil drank her wine carefully. It didn't taste very nice. In fact, quite a lot of things weren't very nice. She wasn't a good cook. She'd never been taught proper cookery. At her school, it had always been assumed that other people would be doing the cooking, and that, in any case, it would be for fifty people using at least four types of fork. Such dishes as she had mastered were dainty things on doilies. But she cooked for Sam because she vaguely felt that a wife ought to, and besides, he was an eater who entirely matched her kitchen skills. He liked burnt sausages and fried eggs that went boing when you tried to stick a fork in them. If you gave him caviar, he'd want it in batter. He was an easy man to feed if you always kept some lard in the house. But the food here tasted as though it had been cooked by someone who had never even tried before. She'd seen the kitchens when Seraphine had given her the little tour, and they'd just about do for a cottage. The game larders, on the other hand, were the size of barns. She'd never seen so many dead things hanging up. It was just that she was certain that venison shouldn't be served boiled with potatoes that were crunchy. If they were potatoes, of course. Potatoes weren't usually grey. Even Sam, who liked the black lumpy bits you got in some mashed potatoes, would have commented. But Sybil had been brought up properly. If you can't find something nice to say about the food, find something else to be nice about. These are really very interesting plates, she said dutifully. Uh, are you sure there's been no more news? She tried to avoid watching the Baron. He was ignoring Sybil and his wife and was prodding the meat around his plate as if he'd forgotten what a knife and fork were for. "'Wolfgang and his friends are still out searching,' said Seraphine. "'But this is terrible weather for a man to be on the run.' "'He is not on the run,' snapped Sybil. "'Sam is not guilty of anything.' "'Of course, of course. All the evidence is circumstantial.' "'Of course,' said the Baroness soothingly. "'Now I suggest that as soon as they have the passes clear, you and the, uh, staff... 
Get back to the safety of Ankh-Morpork before the real winter hits. We know the country, my dear. If your husband is alive, we can soon do something about it. I will not have him shamed like this. You saw him save the king. I'm sure he did, Sibyl. I'm afraid I was talking to my husband at the time, but I don't disbelieve you for a minute. Is it true that he killed all those men in the villainous paths? What? But they were bandits. At the other end of the table, the baron had picked up a lump of meat and was trying to tear it apart with his teeth. Well, yes, of course, yes, of course. Sibyl pinched the bridge of her nose. Most of her would not have considered Sam Vimes guilty of murder, actual murder, even on the evidence of three gods and a message written on the sky. But stories did get back to her in a roundabout way. Sam got wound up about things. Sometimes he unwound all at once. There'd been that bad business with that little girl and those men over at Dolly Sisters, and when Sam had broken into the men's lodgings, he'd found one of them had stolen one of her shoes, and she'd heard detritus say that if he hadn't been there, only Sam would have walked out of the room alive. She shook her head. I really would like a bath, she said. There was a clatter from the other end of the table. Dear, you will have to eat your dinner in the changing room, said the Baroness without looking round. She flashed Lady Sybil a brief, brittle smile. We do not, in fact, have a... have such a... a device in the castle. A thought occurred to her. We use the hot springs so much more hygienic. Out in the forest? Oh, it's quite close. And a quick run around in the snow really turns up the body. I think perhaps I'll have a little lie down instead, said Lady Sybil firmly. But thank you, all the same. She made her way to the musty bedroom, fuming in a ladylike way. She couldn't bring herself to like Seraphine, and this was shocking, because Lady Sybil even liked Nobby Nobs, and that took breeding. But the werewolf scraped across her nerves like a file. She remembered that she'd never liked her at school, either. Among the other unwanted baggage that had been heaped on the young Sybil to hamper her progress through life was the injunction to be pleasant to people and say helpful things. People took this to mean that she didn't think. She'd hated the way Seraphine had talked about dwarfs. She'd called them subhuman. Well, obviously most of them lived underground, but Sybil rather liked dwarfs. And Seraphine spoke of trolls as if they were things. Sybil hadn't met many trolls, but the ones she knew seemed to spend their lives raising their children and looking for the next dollar just like everyone else. Worst of all, Seraphine simply assumed that Sybil would naturally agree with her stupid opinions because she was a lady. Sybil Ramkin had not had an education in these things, moral philosophy not having featured much in a curriculum that was heavy on flower arranging, but she had a shrewd idea that in any possible debate the right side was where Seraphine wasn't. She'd only ever written all those letters to her because it was what you did. You always wrote letters to old friends, even if you weren't very friendly with them. She sat on the bed and stared at the wall until the shouting started. And when the shouting started she knew Sam was alive and well because only Sam made people that angry. She heard the key click in the lock. Sybil rebelled. She was large and she was kind. She hadn't enjoyed school much. A society of girls is not a good one in which to be large and kind because people are inclined to interpret that as stupid and worse, deaf. Lady Sybil looked out of the window. She was two floors up. There were bars across it, but they'd been designed to keep something out. From the inside they could be lifted out of their slots and there were musty but heavy sheets and blankets on the bed. None of this might have suggested very much to the average person, but life in a rather strict school for well-brought-up young ladies can give someone a real insight into the tricks of escapology. 
Five minutes after the key had turned, there was only one bar in the window, and it was jerking and creaking in the stonework, suggesting that quite a heavy weight was on the sheets that had been neatly knotted round it.